All right, St. Marcus. Our lesson on which the teaching tonight comes from is Acts chapter 17. We're going to take a look at verses 16 to 34. And here we read the following. While Paul was waiting for them, this is his other missionary companions, he's waiting for them in Athens, he's greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found even an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. This is an important phrase we'll come back to again and again for the next two weeks. You're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out at their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. See, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising this man from the dead. When all the people heard this about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Here ends our first, or excuse me, our sermon lesson. The book of Acts, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, is the story of the early Christian church. But it's more than just a story of church expansion. It's a story about the spread of the gospel. And what we see happening when you look carefully through the entire book of Acts is you see the exact same gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, going out again and again to different people groups and to different cultures. And it producing the same results, spiritual life. There's hostility from some, but others come to believe because the gospel is the one thing that all humanity truly needs. 
And yet, what's also interesting, when you look through the entire book of Acts, you see that there is like a ministerial methodological shift. And so, for instance, two huge pivotal chapters in Acts are Acts 2 and Acts 17. Acts 2 is the story of Pentecost, and Pentecost was one of the three major Jewish festivals, and in Acts 2, what we find is pilgrims, believers of the the God of Israel, who are coming from all over the Mediterranean world to celebrate that festival and worship that true God, the Hebrew God, and they're gathered together there, and they notice Peter and the other disciples speaking in tongues, and he gets this platform by which he shares with them the message of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter knows his audience. He knows he's speaking to Jews. He knows he's speaking to people who are uh, worshipers of God, religious practitioners. They know their Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. And so when he preaches to them, he preaches to them from those scriptures. He says, look at Joel chapter 2. Look at the Psalms. And then his main objective is to prove to them that Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, is the promised Messiah of those Old Testament scriptures. And so when he gets through that, at the end, what he encourages them to do is repent of their sins, repent of their unbelief, and turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior for salvation. Okay, now that's different. That's different from what he does in Acts chapter 17. And it's actually not Peter there, it's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is in Athens. And he's not speaking to a bunch of uh, traditional Hebrew religious practitioners. It's a totally different climate and a totally different society. He's speaking to pluralistic, highly educated um, pagans and philosophers. Uh, It's a hedonistic group of people who have, they're highly educated, but they have almost zero knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so he doesn't quote to them from the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes to them, actually, from their own revered prophets and philosophers. And eventually, he gets to them to the point of saying, look, you even have so many gods, you have this unknown God by your own admission. And I'm going to tell you who this God is. He's the God above all other gods. And he encourages them to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to find salvation. You see, in both cases, you get law and gospel. In both cases, you get them to the exact same point, faith that comes only through the grace of Jesus Christ. But they take very different paths in order to get to those places because they're ministering to very different people. Now, the reason I spent so much time making that distinction before we even launch into the text is what I'm going to suggest to you today is that the shift that we see between Acts 2, Peter in Jerusalem, and Acts 17, Paul in Athens, is an almost identical shift to what has happened in American society in the past 50 to 75 years. So if you go back, for instance, to the 1950s in America, what you would find, by and large there, is you would find a a modern, biblically literate, moralistic, Acts to Jerusalem kind of society. Not anymore. Not in the 2020s. When you get to the 2020s, what you find is a postmodern, by and large, biblically illiterate, morally relativistic, Athenian kind of culture. In other words, we're in a culture today that much more represents uh, what we find in Athens than what we found in Jerusalem. And our society has shifted that way, and therefore, if we have any desire to get the gospel to people in the 21st century, in the 2020s, I think we have to take our ministerial cues as much or more from Paul in Athens than we do from Peter in Jerusalem. And I believe so strongly about this uh, for our church, for instance, that we're actually going to spend two weeks on this. I don't know that I've ever done this in my entire ministry where I preach on the exact same text 
two weeks in a row. But I think that what, uh, if you're, if you're going to do gospel ministry to God's people in America in uh, 2020s, you need to figure out what the Apostle Paul is doing ministerially in Athens. And so we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking it. We're going to go through two of the plot points here today, and we're only going to go through one application point. Next week, we're going to finish up the rest of the plot and then tease out another two, three application points or so. If you have, by the way, any questions, we don't normally have the benefit of this, but if you have any questions uh, regarding this text, drop them in our Facebook group or in the YouTube page in the comment section, and I'll try to catch as many as I can next week when we pick it back up, okay? But here's the plot line. Uh, in verses 16 through 18, we're introduced to a city that is full of idols, Athens. Athens, in some respects, has passed its prime. Uh, the pinnacle of Athens' power was probably 500 years prior to this, um, when it was kind of the center of the world at that time. Now it's still a center of the world, it's just not like the center of the world. With the rise of Rome and the rise of Alexandria and a number of other prominent cities, Athens is one important city amongst many. It's still, without question, the academic center of the world, and it's still a major cultural influencer in the world. Athens, uh, for a modern example, Athens is like the Ivy League of the, the Roman Empire. Athens is the birthplace of democracy, the idea of rule of the people. We take that for granted today like that is just everybody always understands that that's a wise form of government. No, up until this point, they did not govern that way. That is birthed out of Athens. Uh, the whole genre of philosophy and discipline of philosophy is birthed out of Athens. Much of psychology, much of medicine is birthed out of Athens. In fact, uh, the European Renaissance from 15th century, 16th century, uh, most historians will tell you the catalyst attached to it is the rediscovery of Greek literature. In other words, a rediscovery of Athenian thought. So Athens is one of the biggest movers and shakers, the birthplace of ideas that get disseminated into the world, perhaps as much or more than any other city in world history. At the center of Athens was a place called the Agora. Now, the Agora, which is translated generally in your English translations as a marketplace, it's more than a marketplace. It's more than a place that, where you buy and sell physical commodities because it's the convergence of all human life. Around, like, the perimeter of the Agora was the most important different districts, the, the concert halls and the theaters and all the arts and the gymnasium and the public offices and the law courts and all that stuff. See, remember, this is a time and space where you don't have phones, you don't have computer, you don't have internet, you don't have apps, you don't have stocks, you don't have TV. Where do people go to converge and create ideas and disseminate those ideas? It's the Agora. And what that means is, since we do have all those other things today, what is the Agora of the 21st century? Wherever that is, according to the Apostle Paul's philosophy of ministry, to some extent, you have to go there. Like, so for instance, if you have good news, if you have the seeds of a gospel that brings about not advice for how people should live their lives, but news of a resurrected Savior from sins, and you want to get that important, that life-giving idea out there, where do you got to go? You got to go to the Agora so that it can be birthed and disseminated out into society. That's where Paul goes. And it's there that he begins spreading these ideas, and some of the philosophers that are there start to pick up on this. A group that's referred to as the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on the Epicureans and the Stoics, but they are important to understanding this message, and they are 
an interesting thought process and worldview that totally exists still today. The Epicureans, by and large, were a people group, uh, academic leaders that encouraged individuals to pursue whatever made them happy. You know, they follow whatever you can find in life that helps you avoid displeasure. Uh, follow your bliss. Find your pleasure. Whatever makes you happy, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else and so long as it doesn't destroy you, pursue it. Whatever makes you happy, do that. You be you. Uh, the kind of shorthand for that, which you might remember from your like, high school history classes on the Epicureans, is, is the, the little mantra is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Squeeze as much fun and pleasure out of this life as you can because this is all there is. That's the Epicureans. The Stoics were also different. They were also uh, academics, also philosophers, but they said the basic goal of life was to face life honorably and courageously. And, uh, you know, no matter what life might actually bring, you know, which could be hardship and pain and suffering and death, face it honorably, face it reasonably. And so, in other words, the Epicureans were essentially saying, enjoy your life. And the Stoics were saying, endure your life. And furthermore, the, the Stoics were a group essentially who were moralists. The Epicureans were a group who were moral relativists. The Stoics were a group that said, you know, your, your soul will go on for all eternity, but when you die, your body goes in the ground and it rots, and so your soul is what really matters. That'll carry on forever. The Epicureans believe when you die, you die, and it goes into the ground, and everything's done. Your soul's done, your body's done. So again, squeeze as much pleasure out of this life as you can because this is all you got. The Stoics believed in the idea of sort of an impersonal divine force, typically what we would refer to as fate that sort of governs the universe. But both the Stoics and the Epicureans had any conception of God or gods that were on the fringes of how they operated and how they thought. And uh, it, this is in contrast. These two humanistic philosophies or worldviews are totally in contrast to the traditional pagan religions of the day, the Greco-Roman gods that you've heard about before. See, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they didn't pray, they didn't worship, they didn't go to temples, they didn't make sacrifices to any of the gods, they actually kind of looked down on that. That was the regressive, traditional, pagan people. The Stoics and the, and the Epicureans, these philosophers, if I had to make one singular comparison today, I would say they're like the university. Uh, universities today, partially for legal reasons, can't like uh, deny religion or anything like that. But they, generally speaking, kind of see themselves as above it. And that's the idea of what's going on in those days. You have the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and you have the traditional pagan uh, practitioners who made sacrifices and went to all the temples. And uh, these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers are fascinated by the message that the Apostle Paul is talking about in the marketplace. Well, what message is he bringing? What they're latching on to is this idea. He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. What it says there in verse 18 there, he's teaching good news about Jesus and the resurrection. What he's teaching is so far off from their cultural worldview that they don't even understand. He's, he's talking about one guy, Jesus Christ. See, this is the reason why the, the charge that's brought against them is he seems to be advocating foreign gods. It doesn't say he's advocating a foreign god. It says he's advocating foreign gods. The reason for that is he's talking about Jesus and Jesus' resurrection. But the word for resurrection in Greek is the word anastasis. Anastasis actually, by the way, we still have a female name today that's close to that, Anastasia. 
which basically means resurrection. They thought Paul was talking about two gods. That's how outside of the realm of their way of thinking Paul was teaching. And they were offended by what he was saying, and yet he was speaking with such conviction and such authority and such coherence that they're also attracted and fascinated to what he's saying. And they say to him, you know what, we would like to hear a lot more about this. Why don't you come and speak officially before our group of leaders called the Areopagus? And therefore, in verses 19 to 23, we get Paul's platform. Um, Notice also here that the method that Paul is teaching with and engaging, he's not preaching. I would not call at all a street preacher, the kind we think of sometimes today that look a little bit crazy in what they're doing. So he's not a street preacher, and yet he's also not one of those believers, like many of us do, that sort of retracts his faith and hides it behind closed doors. He's not like lambasting people out in public, but he's also not hiding with the message of the gospel. He's engaging, what it literally says here is he reasons with the people. He's engaging in what's called Socratic dialogue. He's respectfully, coherently, humbly, yet boldly debating his surrounding culture. Now, what this tells us as far as a way that we interact with our culture is you can't privatize it. Uh, Satan would love for you to privatize your faith because then the good news would never actually get out there. But you can't totally privatize your faith and yet when you take it out there, you have to engage in such a way that you can interact with the people who might otherwise be listening to it. And so, what do we find? I, I think one of the lessons that we learn here, before I even get into the application section, one of the things that we learn especially in our particular cultural moment during a pandemic, is we've noticed, you've noticed, that even with the buildings shut down, God's church continues to move forward. That's interesting. So that those of us who have held too closely an idea that Christianity is tied to specific buildings sort of let go of that idea. Remember, the Apostle Paul says in this message, God does not live in temples that are built by human hands, in sacred spaces. You are the church, and he wants you to take that message out there. Now, that that doesn't mean that we stop gathering. Of course, of course, it's part of God's will for his church to gather together in person and live as community in person. But what it does mean is that the sum total of Christian expression cannot be in our privatized gatherings. It cannot be, our, our Christian faith cannot simply be practiced uh, behind closed doors in big fancy buildings. Okay, Paul's taking it out there. What is the message that he's taking out there? Well, we said it's, it's, it's Jesus and the resurrection. And it's so fascinating that the leaders, the philosophical leaders, want him to, to come to the, the Areopagus. Okay, what's an Areopagus? The Areopagus really means two things. Areopagus, pagus is a word for hill. In the Areopagus was the hill of Ares, which in Greco-Roman culture is another name for Ares is Mars. This is Mars Hill is the location. So it's a specific location that they're going to. The Areopagus, however, was also a council that judged over affairs of the people. Not a legal council, but a thinking council. They were the smartest guys in the room. They were the university. They were the people that judged over any new ideas that came regarding worldviews or philosophies or religions. This is, Paul is doing the first TED Talk. 
That's what that is, right? You get a bunch of smart people together. You get one who knows a lot in one given area. He or she presents, and then the rest of the people either approve or deny the thoughts that are going on there. Paul is doing a TED Talk to the Areopagus to see how they receive what's going on. And what is Paul's talk? The premise of his whole deal is he says, look, I can see in every way that you people are very religious. Okay? So, what that does is two things. The pagans that are listening to him are going to be kind of flattered by that. Oh, he thinks we're very religious practitioners. He's right, we are. It's also kind of a wink and a nod to the philosophers who think that the pagan practices are a little bit underneath them. And they're like, oh, yeah, we have too many pagans around here. They're, they're not enlightened. So Paul's kind of calling them out on that. But here's what he does. He says, when I was in your marketplace, I noticed that you have not only a bunch of gods, but interestingly enough, you even have a permanent altar to an unknown god. That's fascinating. In fact, the legend attached to this altar is that once upon a time, years earlier than Paul, uh, there was a great plague in Athens. And what the people do, what people have done throughout history when there's a plague or a famine or anything like that, a war, they would often make, they would ramp up their sacrifices to the gods because maybe the gods are angry at us and they're bringing this plague down upon us, so how do we appease them? We'll make more sacrifices. So that's what the Athenians did. But the plague wouldn't go away. And so one of the wise men of the city had this idea, hey, wait a second, maybe we're missing something in the pantheon of our gods. Maybe we've offended a different god out there that we don't even yet know. And so he gets this idea to grab a sheep, go up to the top of Mars Hill, release the sheep into the city, and wherever the sheep stops, he's going to build an altar and he's going to mark the altar to an unknown god, making a sacrifice that says, we're sorry that we haven't worshipped and praised you the way that we should have. Please have mercy on us. Well, guess what? Again, as legend has it, when he sacrificed to this unknown god, the plague shortly after came to an end, and that made this altar to an unknown god a permanent fixture of the Athenian agora moving forward. What Paul brilliantly does here is he says, look, by your own admission, you testify that there is a god out there who is in control of a lot of things, and you don't actually fully know him. You acknowledge that you haven't actually served him. In other words, by your own admission, in your daily lives, you behave in certain ways to testify to a God out there that you say you don't personally know. We're going to come back to that point next week in our applications in much detail because that is the one of the most powerful truths that Paul presents to us here, that human beings are naturally living according to certain behaviors that suggest God exists, but they're testifying by their own admission they don't know who that God really is. And Paul says, let me reveal him to you because I've met him in person. He's actually the God that is above all other gods. He came to earth to die for our sins. He rose from the grave and he says, if you simply trust in me, if you believe in me, you can have eternal life, the life that really is life with me. Now, again, what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks, excuse me, in the next week, all those other points that you see on your screen right now, we're going to see that in the meat of Paul's sermon, he's going to talk about God as the creator and provider. He's going to talk about God as the sovereign ruler. He's going to talk about God as a savior judge. And then we're going to see the results of his messaging. Does all of Athens convert? Does none of Athens con convert? What happens? We're going to figure out the implications of that. 
But for right now, I just want to move on to the one application point that I have here for today, and it's this. We live in a world that is run by idols. What does that mean? That might be kind of strange to hear a pastor say that, that this world is run by idols. But I'm not saying anything that the Bible itself doesn't say, but you might not have heard it before, or at least quite like this. Throughout the Bible, this is a consistent message. For instance, in Isaiah 14, the prophet Isaiah says that he knows, as from a vision from God, that there was a fallen angel that he calls Lucifer. It's hard to see it in Isaiah 14 because most translations have it listed as the morning star, but that's really what Lucifer actually means. We generally refer to him as Satan. And in Isaiah 14, Isaiah says that Satan, he saw him fall from heaven. And at that point, Satan was one of the rulers that was appointed to rule a portion of heaven, but he fell from heaven. And where do you fall if you fall from heaven? You fall down to earth. And Satan was relegated to some form of rule over earth. And his mission, according to Isaiah, moving forward, is that Satan is trying to elevate his throne above the throne of the Most High God in heaven. That's very informative because what does it tell us? It says Satan has a throne because Satan's a ruler. In fact, Satan is a local ruler, a ruler of the earth. See, but the problem is that's not the throne that he wants. He wants the throne of the Most High God in heaven. And so what he does for the rest of his time as he awaits the final day of judgment is he is constantly trying to pull as many people away from the God who would otherwise have them returned to him safely in heaven. Now, unless you have that understanding of Satan and unless you have that understanding of this fallen world, you cannot understand many of the pivotal statements of Scripture. So, for instance, let me give you just a couple examples. In Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus has been baptized, remember what he does? He goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And one of Satan's temptations is what? Jesus, look out at all the kingdoms of the earth and if you would simply bow down and worship me, I will give you control of all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, we know Jesus resists that temptation, but one of the things that's interesting to notice, what doesn't Jesus do? He doesn't deny that Satan has the ability to hand over to him rule of the kingdoms of the earth. Because Satan does have some authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's precisely why Jesus in John's gospel especially, John chapter 12, John chapter 14, he refers to Satan as the prince of this world, a ruler of this world. This is exactly the reason why the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, you know what he refers to Satan as? He calls him the God of this age, the world's God. Satan is like the mayor of earth. And in fact, there's one other spot I want to take you to. Daniel chapter 10. If you don't know, Daniel, that second half of Daniel's book is, is very much like Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. It's a vision that Daniel has received from God. And one of the things that Daniel sees is he says, I have seen Satan, Lucifer, I have seen him send out his underlings, the, the demons that have rule and power who are underneath him. I have seen, send, he seen him send those out to govern over the nations of the earth. And what are they doing? They are sent to the various nations of the earth so that they can influence leaders and peoples to act contrary to God's will, manipulating them through the use of idols. One of the main things the Bible is warning you about is the spiritual forces of evil in this world that seek to manipulate you through the usage of idols, which is why the first of the Ten Commandments is all about 
idols. Now, if you've, if you've been worshiping with us for a while, you know we talk about idols a lot. So I'm not going to go and rehash all of that. Go into our sermon archives and listen to some of that. We've got a lot of teaching on idols. But for tonight, the singular point that I want to get to here is this. This world in its present form, is not ruled by neutral flesh and blood, but it's ruled by the spiritual forces of evil that have fallen down from the heavenly realms. They absolutely rule the marketplace. They absolutely rule and govern over the agora. They absolutely govern over the universities and the politics and the entertainment industry. And, the, and everybody, you know, people listening might say, Pastor, are you saying that all those things are evil? Are you saying universities are evil and politics are evil and and entertainment industry is all evil? No. The medium is neutral. The mediums are neutral. But the governing forces that exist over the top of these things, according to the Bible, are fallen spiritual forces. So what does the Christian do? The Christian says, okay, wait a second, what did Jesus say about this? He came into the world and he said, I have overcome the world. In other words, there are rulers and princes over this earth, fallen angels, but I have overcome all of them on your behalf. And you know what? On top of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my spirit right inside you. And you know what I want you to do with my spirit? I want you to go out into the agora. I want you to take my spirit and take my good news, take my gospel message and get out there. Stop just privatizing it. Get it out there into the world. Be my witnesses. Be my missionaries amongst all the pagans and all the philosophers. And don't think that we have any less of them today than what they had back there in Athens. And so the teaching today then is this. We end with repentance and turning to Jesus. Just like Peter did, just like Paul did. What do we repent of? I think three things today. Number one, I would repent if in any way, shape, or form you or I have privatized our faith in ways that God would not have attended for us. Uh, Number two, I think we would repent of um, basically the idea of not being ready to give a coherent, reasonable uh, witness to the hope that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Peter in the New Testament says, always be ready, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you've been given in Jesus Christ. If you or I have not always been ready, that's something to repent of too. And a third thing I think to repent of if we're submitting to this text entirely, is some of us have been really good at memorizing the words that we should say to a culture, in other words, the doctrine, but that doctrine hasn't always been supported by uh, the love of Christ, uh, humility, and a respect, and a sacrificial kind of compassion that accompanies the message, which leads the world to just attack us as hypocrites. And if we have truth without love, we are in fact hypocrites. I know I have at least three things that I personally should probably be repenting of according to this text. But I'm also reminded of one more good thing that's good news. And that's the fact that where we've failed, the one that the Apostle Paul points to, Jesus, has succeeded. That at his cross, he took all of our failures upon himself. And he gave to us his success. In his resurrection, all of his submission to God's law and all of his overcoming sin, Satan, and death, Jesus now credits to our account. His success has become our resurrection success. And therefore, we move forward with total confidence. I want you to think about this. Jesus pre-incarnation was probably pretty comfortable. I have to imagine. Um, Up in heaven... um, you know, the the worship behind heavenly doors probably had pretty good acoustics. 
It was probably pretty comfortable. It probably was, was, was like paradise. But Jesus, of his own volition, and by the Father's will, said, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to go into the darkest place. I'm going to go from heaven to earth. Though I don't deserve that, that's where I'm going to go. And I'm going to go into the marketplace. I'm going to go into the agora. I'm going to face all the hostility, all the condescension, all the name-calling, all the public embarrassment, all the crosses, and in fact, hell itself. But I'm going to put myself out there. Why? He's putting himself out there for you and me. Because, you know, worshiping from a cross, it brings salvation into the world for others. It does it ultimately in Jesus, but even you and me, worshiping from a cross is a way to get the gospel truths into the lives of others. And it glorifies our Father in heaven. Jesus respected his Father so greatly, and he loved you and me so dearly, that he was willing to go so distantly out there, all the way with his feet down into hell, in order to pay for our sins and take care of God's family. And he says, all of the debt of your idolatry I have totally taken care of. I have fully paid for. But now I'm sending you on a mission and I want you to do something because I have freed you from that idolatrous power and I have freed you from the consequences of your sins and I have put my own spirit in you. What I want you to do now is I need you to get out there. Take my gospel and go out into the world. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive me, for starters. I think even as a pastor, I'm sometimes so concerned about the world, what the world might think of me, that I sometimes don't put myself out there the way that I should, and I am sorry for that. Free us from the power of idols and human philosophies in the marketplace, spiritual forces trying to tear us from you, Thank you for sending your Son, our Savior, to die for our sins of self-preservation. Now move us. Move us with your Spirit, the same Spirit that moved Paul, to be both greatly distressed by our world, but also thoroughly loving and bold and persuasive in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.